Welcome to the Intelligent Investing Podcast, where modern portfolio theory can suck it. A student of the school of Graham and Doddsville and a clergy member of the Church of Warren Buffett, here's your host, Eric Schlein. Hi, this is Eric Schlein. You are listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast, and today we have on Rafael Resendez, who is the portfolio manager and co-founder of Applied Finance Capital Management. Uh, welcome to the show, Rafael. Did I, I hope I didn't butcher your name too badly. No, that's fine. That's okay. great. Thank you, Eric. Great to be here. For sure. Now, where, where are you from? So Applied Finance Capital Management, we are headquartered in Puerto Rico, beautiful right. San Juan. Nice. I, I was just great in San place, Juan. Great place to... Great place to be away from the Wall Street mentality and have a fresh perspective on things. Yeah, yeah, no, it, I, it's beautiful. I, I was just out there last year uh, for New Year's, actually, with my family. Ah, brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Now, are, you, no, are, are you originally from out there or where? No, I am. I'm actually uh, what's affectionately called a gringo out there. But okay. my parents actually immigrated from Cuba. So a lot of oh, similar wow. cross-cultural influences in terms of uh, foods and ties back to Spain and Spanish heritage. Very, very uh, familiar place to me emotionally, in many ways, if you might might say that. Got it. Yeah, I, you know, I'm I'm excited to have you on. When your uh, agent or press person reached out to me and said, you know, you want to talk about valuation, you have a very interesting way of looking at things. You know, at my firm, I talk to my investors a lot about how you know just these traditional value metrics aren't, doesn't always mean something is cheap. You know, uh, the world has changed a lot. Uh, not to say not to look at those things, but I think what you're doing is really interesting. I don't totally fully understand what you're doing, but it seemed interesting enough that it's worth having a conversation about. I like bringing innovative, interesting people um, on the show. So can you give us a little bit of background on just a very, very bird's eye view of, you know, you know, what your company does and, and who you are and, and, and we'll go from there. Sure. Sure. So we'll start. Uh, Applied Finance launched in 1995 and uh, our raison d'etre, if you will, is to answer two questions that I think are critical to evaluating any company as an investment. The first is how well is the company performing? And the second is what is the company worth? And that's we created a framework proprietary to us called an economic margin framework, which works to unscramble accounting data. You know, accounting is, is uh, the information from an accounting perspective is generated for many users, whether it's regulatory uses, debt uses uh, for contracting purposes, and obviously for investors to understand profitability. So the way it's presented has many different masters, many different uses. We've taken all that and we try to unscramble it back to a set of economic principles to really address, is this company creating or destroying shareholder value? You can't just get that from an earnings number because the accounting data misses so many things. It, it assumes that the cost of equity is free, right? It, it charges a company for interest expense, yet assumes the cost of equity is free. So earnings really are a very bad capstone proxy for economic profitability of a company. So we start with cleaning everything up. It's a pretty uh, intensive process. Then we take that and we convert that into an estimate of a company's intrinsic value. So once we have a performance understanding of the firm through this economic margin, 
We then forecast out capital expenditures. We assess the risk of a company. And in very broad strokes, a small, highly levered firm, in our view of the world, needs to compensate us or pay us more for providing them capital than a large unlevered firm to make things really simple. So we want to make sure that the cash flows of a firm are risk adjusted. And then lastly, we have something we created called an economic profit horizon. And what that essentially says is there's always competitors at work. So if you're doing well today, odds are there's some economic force that's going to be working super hard while you're sleeping to take those profits away. So we're not going to pay forever for a firm to continue doing what it's doing and generating excess rates of return forever. Very few firms are actually able to do that. And those are what we'd consider to be the super firms of the past and today. In the past, it was IBM. Today, it's Google. You know, it's these things change. And, and what, seeming, what might appear to be a seemingly impenetrable fortress of economic profits with time tends to erode away. And that's one of the things that's given us a really unique edge understanding firm value. Now, before we get more into what your company does, you know, what had you start this? What were you doing before? It's, you know. Great, great yeah. question. Great question. So prior to all of this, I was, I was at the University of Chicago getting my PhD. And I loved the coursework and reached a point where all the material being studied kind of deviated away from what I really enjoyed, which was figuring out what companies were worth. So at that point, I decided, I think I have enough tools to do what I want to do. Let's go out and start to apply it. So I, I picked, got a job, became director of research for a firm, started exploring these different concepts of corporate performance and valuation and, and uh, economic stability or, or profitability horizons. And then a friend of mine from school joined me. And we ran that research department together for a while. And then we formed the Applied Finance Group in 1995. Dan O'Bricky and I started the company basically in my basement in Chicago. And uh, it's been a great ride ever since. I think we've done, we've done some innovative things that today are starting to catch on in the investing world. For instance, in 95, we capitalized research and development rather than treating it as an expense. So, so talk more about just provide the very different. Yeah. Yeah. So talk more just cause I, I don't want to just go over nine things and then not yeah. address yeah. them. So, cause there's a lot, I think there's a lot you can talk about. You're clearly a very smart guy. So just that on that one specific thing, you know, can you expand upon that for us? Sure. On research and development. Yeah. So if you, yeah, if you think about the concept of, of what accounting is trying to do, right. It's trying to tell a story. Mm -hmm. It's trying to articulate and write the story of a company over time. And the rules they've adopted to tell that story is the, the main plot line, if you will, is the matching principle. They want to take a set of economic transactions that a company is investing or expensing and match them to the incoming revenues associated with those expenditures so that you can match these things up and like fractions, you can add them and, and figure out how a firm is doing at a point in time. Research and development is a really interesting concept because unlike building a factory that accountants like, it's a, a bunch of bricks, it's some concrete, it's, it's machines, you can, you can it. touch it. Yeah. Exactly. Tangible. Accountants are very good with tangible assets, right? Research and development, you tell that to an accountant if they say, well, when will you see revenue from it? What can we attach it to? How do we know it's going to be worth anything? 
Well, this has Let's been the issue. The more conservative path. I mean, this has been the yep. issue with, say, a company like Amazon, right? Completely. Right. And that's a great example. And we'll touch on that briefly sure. at the end of this, this little, this yeah. little, uh, sorry to detour. cut you off. Great yeah, example. But, yeah. No, no, no. Great example. Great example. So the accountant thinks they let's, it's expensive. Well, using Amazon as an, as an example, when Bezos was building Amazon back in the early nineties, it's hard to imagine him thinking, Oh, I'm going to invest in some R and D and I expect to get paid on it this year. He's thinking, I'm going to make these investments. I'm not going to get paid for years. So the actual matching of the outflow of the research and development expenditure with the revenue for Amazon had massive lag periods. That's why no one really understood the company. Yeah. Even recently, people don't understand the company well. As, as recent as 2017, Amazon had net income of $3 billion, right? Research and development was about $12 billion. Yeah. Depreciation expense was about $12 billion. So going back to that economic margin concept, these are all adjustments we've been making since 1995 to companies to evaluate how well they're doing. Amazon, if you move from earnings to what we'd call operations-based cash flow, in 2017, operations-based cash flow is approximately $30 billion. Net income was off by a factor of 10. And this is where this, this, the quantitative value investing paradigm has really broken down. If you go back to the origins of quantitative value investing, Eugene Fama and Ken French wrote this the seminal paper in 92 that basically introduced book to price as the value factor. And if you look at the data on this, they studied accounting information from I think 63 to 91. And if you looked at the data on book to price over that time period, Essentially, you saw what was probably an infallible variable. It was almost, it's, it's impossible. It's, it literally was the equivalent of Elvis Presley debuting rock and roll on Ed Sullivan. This thing was a surefire winner under any kind of economic circumstance. The problem with any kind of study where you're doing it in sample is whether you want to or not, you know the answer. And that's a big bias in almost any kind of research. Since that study came out, book to price has really struggled. And in fact, if you looked at large cap stocks, it's, it's basically been a failure since 1992. It's significantly underperformed the market. And that's the large cap portion is relevant because that's where all the investable assets are. You know, maybe on the micro level, it's worked okay, but you're talking about maybe five, six, seven percent of the investable universe. It's, yeah. it's large caps where you really have to prove something. So we've been doing the same thing since 95. And it's interesting because we worked when we started applied finance, we worked for a year just calibrating this concept of building an economic margin and building this valuation. We, we worked on data from 1975 to 1995 to kind of set the model. And then since then it's been the same model. So unlike uh, the experience of a of a model built all in sample, everything that we've done has been out of sample. It's been live data that we've been producing and sending out to clients and building portfolios from. And it's the basis of a paper that we just introduced. Uh, and we're going to preview to the academic community this, this next week, actually, oh, wow. December 8th. We're having a workshop on it called Valuation Data. And it's really a paradigm shift in thinking about how the market's setting prices instead of relying on book to price, which really is sort of a leverage factor. It's directly getting at the heart of what is a company worth? And from a behavioral perspective, are companies being mispriced? 
And does the company react and the market react and over time fix those mispricings, which leads to excess positive and negative returns? So it's really, it's really, it's a lot of fun. This has been a great, professionally a great ride since 95. And do you think that this difference in the way um, you're looking at pricing securities, do you think this is part of why some of the old industry experts are saying, you know, things are looking extremely expensive or in a bubble because they're using old valuation metrics or do you think there's truth in both? It's a, another good question because I think there's truth in both in the following sense. A lot of industry people have been saying we're in a bubble and that value is significantly underpriced. Growth is significantly overpriced. And that, I think those, uh, the boy crying wolf has been screeching on the corner for a few years now, just making the same, more than a few argument. Yeah. More than a few for us. Interestingly, just this past July, we saw growth turn statistically expensive from our perspective, not as expensive as what we saw during the tech boom. Mm-hmm. So it hasn't, you know, a lot of people are saying it's reaching those proportions that it's just, it's never been seen this expensive before for us. That's not the case. And I think a lot of it comes down to understanding value creation and the fact that book value, which is a backward looking metric. I mean, it, the easiest way I can describe it is you're going to go join your friend at a bar or a dinner party after work and you're taking off down the freeway, you call them and you say, hey, I'm looking out my rearview mirror right now. There's a lot of traffic. I'll probably be 15 minutes late. Now, had you looked ahead of you, which is what a a company's worth, it's not worth what happened behind you. Traffic behind you, it may be correlated to traffic in front of you because if there's a lot behind you, maybe there's some in front of you, there's some correlation, but it has nothing to do necessarily with what's happening in front of you. Same thing with a company. What's happened in the past, that accumulation of excess profits may be correlated to excess to intrinsic value. And in fact, it is. The study of valuation data shows price to book or book to price has some correlation to intrinsic value. But if you account for intrinsic value, book to price has no explanatory ability whatsoever to determine or explain future stock returns. So going back to our analogy, you should be looking forward. When you do that, Companies such as a Google, NVIDIA, Apple, MasterCard, Facebook, all companies that we've owned in our, in our fund, and we've owned them since 2011, when even back then the PEs or the price to books were relatively high. For us, they've always been undervalued. Just this past July, August, we started to see the growth universe become statistically expensive. Again, a, a major difference from the way people are trying to frame this similar to the tech boom in 1999-2000, the, the growth universe indeed was very expensive. The value universe was very compelling. It was very cheap, very undervalued. Stocks were trading at, a, at significant discounts to their intrinsic value. Today, we don't see the value universe being as compelling a buy in terms of being undervalued mm-hmm. as much as we see that they're just more attractively priced than growth stocks that are overvalued. Mm-hmm. So the comparisons are are somewhat okay now to the tech boom, but these are really two very different sets of circumstances. Interesting. Um, other than R&D, what are some other things, metrics you or um, accounting um, sure. you, you look at we'll that, go, we'll, <clears throat> that are different? We'll go deep into the, apologies. we'll go deep into the weeds just That's, to be a little, just to, just yeah. to flash my nerd, my nerd uh, bona fides. 
So another thing that we've been doing since 95 is we treat operating leases as a piece of financing. You know, just this last year, the accounting community has come back around and said, okay, we're going to take operating leases and you need to start putting them on the balance sheet. We've been doing that since 1995. So any analyst today looking at a set of financial statements, trying to compare it to five or six years ago, apples to oranges. How do you compare uh, a retailer that's now unlevered, so to speak, versus one that's levered from its financial statements in the past? Unless you go and you do all the legwork to make these things comparable. We've been doing this since 1995, and we have it in a database of live data, which is one of the things I think that sets us apart from any asset manager in the world. No one's invested to build the research infrastructure that we've put in place over the last 25 years. Another interesting one that, again, very few people think about is take a company like Exxon, right? If you were to compare Exxon to Apple going back to 2017, and I were to tell you Apple is a more balance sheet intensive company than Exxon, you'd think you'd kick me off your show. You'd think I'm an idiot, right? <laughs> yeah. Indeed, Apple has more assets than Exxon. But again, this is where the accounting data tends to fall really short. Yeah. Exxon has assets on its books from the 1960s, right? Refineries, oil rigs, trucks. Assets that were acquired in 1960 dollars are a lot cheaper than assets acquired in 2020 dollars. Just from the perspective, go out and buy a ladder in 1960 and compare that to buying a ladder in 2020, right? Right. The accountants keep everything at historic cost. Now, the cash flow and the income statement is being generated in today's dollars. Yeah. So you can have a company like Exxon that looks like it's wildly profitable because it's on an ROI basis because its asset base is so old and depreciated. So another adjustment we make to bring everybody to a level playing field is we take those assets and we inflation adjust them to today's dollars. So now once you do that, all of a sudden from an economic perspective, Exxon's balance sheet is approximately 70% larger than Apple's. Mm. Apple's much more profitable company, but the asset intensity all of a sudden starts to make much more sense between these two behemoths of, of firms. So there's, there's literally a, a, a litany of checklists of things that we go down. We try to understand how old, you know, obviously how old is the plant for inflation adjustment purposes? How long will the company's assets last? You know, an ROI where you take cash flow over assets assumes every company's assets last forever, which yeah. is nutty. They have to be replaced. A company that has to replace their assets every five years has a very different set of economics than one that replaces them every 20. So it's, Conceptually, I think this is a very easy to grasp concept. You have to earn a return on, on your economic assets, an economic return minus uh, a risk-adjusted cost of capital. And then you can apply that to estimates of future growth to drive cash flows. The actual, the details of it start to get a little bit wonky. Yeah. Now, this must take a lot of manpower to do all this work. I mean, how many people do you have working for you? So here's the thing, we've this we we call this quantitative valuation because we've set us we put together a set of principles and, and algorithms back in nineteen ninety-five okay. to consistently treat every company's data the same. So our firm is consists of seventeen people kind of across we've we've been a decentralized uh, work from home firm almost since day one. You know, we have we have an office in Chicago, office in San Juan, but we have partners literally all over the country. We have 17 of us 
the average tenure of our partner is 17 years. So for a firm that's been around 25, average tenure is 17. Our youngest employee has been with us for six years. So we are a, really a very focused group of valuation fanatics. We've yeah. grown up professionally together. Uh, we have share a very similar esprit de corps and a very similar philosophy about how markets work and and how to really understand and construct portfolios to create value long term for our clients. It's a it's been a really fun it's been a really fun journey with everybody. So where are you seeing value these days from the the data that you guys look at when you make adjustments? Right. So <clears throat> It depends on the product. Uh, in some regards, some of our products are sector neutral. So we're buying, they're long only, we're buying companies from every sector. Mm-hmm. But names that I think would, would still be, uh, would still surprise a number of people as, as let's use the tech sector as an sure. example, because we have, a, we have an interesting uh, dichotomy of firms there. Intel shows up as, a, as an undervalued firm to us, which I think surprises nobody, right? It's, yeah. It's, the classic deep value. I'd say statistically, right? Basically, statistically, it's Statistic, correct. Statistically, a, a quantitative quote value company. Yeah. At the same time, we own Apple. We right. think Apple's attractively priced. So, the interesting thing about our approach is that you know we're not really tied to a, a, a growth philosophy or the statistical value philosophy. To us, value is a function of profitability and growth, and that's part of the the tortured nature of this investing language that value somehow has to denote cheapness. And old because Charlie, really Charlie what, Munger, and, Munger and Buffett would say the same, you know, they say the same thing that all investing is value investing. Um, Correct. What, Correct. What, what adjustments do you make to Apple? So how do you, how do you look at Apple differently than maybe a, a typical analyst? Well, I think, you know, the way that we would go about doing it is number one, we'd, we'd calculate its economic margin. Right. And then we'd compare where its economic margin is today and where it's being forecast for the next few years against its history. And once we've kind of our algorithms start to figure out what's a reasonable level to begin a projection of how Apple's going to do going forward. That's one piece of the puzzle. The next piece is figuring out what's Apple doing with its cash. Is it continuing to reinvest? Is it returning cash back to its owners? If it's returning cash back to its owners, we're going to change our assumptions about future growth. And in fact, we've seen that happen with Apple over time. Mm-hmm. It was not paying a dividend in the past. All the cash it had, its, its opportunity set was essentially, when, when each new iPhone would come out and people thought it was magic, its opportunity set was essentially unbounded at that point in time. You know, if you go back to Apple back in 2006, 2007, 2008, as these iPhone iterations were coming out, it was, it's almost like, we're all people witnessing fire for the first time, right? This is the technology was incredible and they basically had uh, an infinite runway in front of them to grow their business and reinvest in the business as they've started to mature, you know, our forecasts for their capital growth have slowed down. But in spite of that, it's become so large and it's generating such prodigious amounts of cash from existing businesses and then continuing to define and create new niches to harvest cash from, whether it's the ear pods, whether it's the app universe, you know, now it's, it's looked like it's trying to crack the code on health. Who knows what happens with regard to banking? Uh, we then factor that into this notion of 
this economic profit horizon. So whereas most analysts would say, I'm going to forecast out Apple for five years, and then at the end, I'm going to apply uh, a perpetuity model to, to basically take forever back to today, we would say that's absolutely insane. Who Mathematically correct, we, I couldn't agree more. The present value of a dollar into perpetuity growing at 5% with the 10% cost of capital is one over 10 minus five. You know, mathematically correct, empirically bankrupt. No one thinks Apple's gonna stay the same and no one thinks Apple won't face competition. In 2006, no one thought who would compete with the iPhone, Blackberry, no. But all of a sudden you have Android, right? Yeah. Android is, is an equally uh, accepted operating system to navigate a mobile device as iOS. What happens in the future? Who knows? I'm willing to bet something will happen in the future that will make things very different five, six, seven years from now than the way we see the world today. You know, it's the classic MySpace versus Facebook story. These things, these are themes as old as, as man themselves that are constantly playing themselves out over and over again. So we incorporate this notion of economic profit horizon. We're not going to pay a perpetuity value for Apple. In spite of that, we find that the stock is still attractively priced for us. Interesting. Um, what about uh, like SaaS companies? I mean, that's been a big hot theme in the market and lots of dispute on how do you value them? Are they really, really expensive or some expensive, some cheap? Have you, do, you, do you look at anything like that? And, and, and how do you look at those businesses? So uh, when you say, uh, I want to just understand the term, you said a fast company? No, no, SaaS, S-A-A-S. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Th that's not really an issue to value those companies. I mean, it, it's, it gets back to this, this notion of an intangible, right. just to kind of complete the loop on that. That's why I brought it I up. I think there's a rule. It's clearly. An yeah. Great. Right. I clearly you've done this once before at least. Well, I, 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 I look at things. The no, what I mean is yeah. great job driving the conversation. Oh, that's thank all, you. That's all I'm saying. Great okay. job driving the conversation. Uh, what I'm getting at by that is intangibles is an area also really misunderstood in the marketplace. A lot of people believe by virtue of making an expenditure, you've created an asset. You know, I go out and I spend on advertising and I got to capitalize it because it's an intangible. I'm spending on r and I'm creating an asset. Well, a lot of these expenditures fail. So ultimately, all of these SaaS companies, these data-driven types of firms, uh, business models, they have to generate economic profitability. You can't just you can't just assign a value to a firm simply because it's spending R and D or it's in a hot spot. You know, yeah. we saw that with Pets.com back in 2000. You can be in the hot spot, you can garner assets, but in order for the intangibles to be worth something, ultimately, they have to generate that economic profitability. And what the value of an intangible, what an intangible ultimately is, is it's something that gives a firm an insight or an advantage to earn sustainable economic profits. The R&D isn't an intangible per se, it's an intangible because maybe it gives the company an edge in a product no one else has, or it gives the company an insight to extend a product in a way no one else has. The actual R&D investment by itself is not an intangible, it's the result of that maybe that results in excess profitability and the value of the firm being worth more. Coca-Cola, it's an easy recipe, but it's the billions invested in the Coke brand that everyone recognizes the red can with the swoosh 
that they go and pick it up off the grocery counter because the, the intangible there is the confidence of knowing what this product will taste like. So you're not going to be unpleasantly surprised. It's going to meet your expectation. Same thing for these SaaS companies. The ones that, that ultimately have a viable business model doesn't mean that they're, that they're worth what they're trading for. But in theory, the, 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 the concept of valuing them is very simple. They have to generate that cash flow and, and be worth uh, the traded price. And it's, it's interesting this this example comes up and we're talking about bubbles. One of my partners today sent me a, a research report we did in August of 2000, where we tried to figure out what Cisco was worth back then. Back then, Cisco was the, the, the company with the largest market cap in the world. It was trading at $66 a share. And we went through a, a process we created back then called value expectations. We created this back in 1999. We still use it extensively today. And in fact, in the future, we'll be, we'll be launching some, some publicly available tools around this concept. But essentially, it allows you to say, okay, given a company's stock price today, what are the prices I'm paying for in terms of fundamental drivers? Sales growth, margin expansion, asset efficiency gains. Let me back into those numbers, assuming an economic profit horizon that I've empirically forecasted. And then let's see how those numbers compare against what the company is able to deliver. If you did this exercise for Cisco, this is a company that was going to have to grow sales at 50% a year to justify its stock price. Yeah. We issued that report. And uh, at the time, we didn't have any clients because we were telling people for months going back to night. We first started our firm doing corporate consulting, helping companies evaluate IPOs and mergers and acquisitions and divestitures. And then we started selling research in the investment community around 1999. And we came out with these concepts that all of these stocks are overvalued. And people thought that we had six eyes. No one, no, literally no one wanted to talk to us. We'd send out these research reports and we'd get answers back. I'm going to start a, a timer on when your firm goes bankrupt. You guys are insane. Sure enough, Few years later, we said Cisco is worth 14. Three years later, Cisco's trading at 12. <laughs> One of the things that's interesting about you know the investment community and, and investment data is there's a lot of volatility yeah. around prices and things don't react. Something can be undervalued, but it doesn't necessarily or overvalued, and it doesn't necessarily self-correct immediately. It'd be it'd be fun sometime to sit down and and take a look at Tesla together because I think that's another fascinating case study. That that would be. I mean, we could even just do an episode looking at Tesla, if you're if you're down for we that. We could do that. Cool. It's. Uh, I think that would have very interesting ramifications for people without necessarily. Uh, so much of Tesla that I think is interesting is nobody knows exactly how that future is going to unfold. Right. And but what what we can do is bring tools to the table to help people quantify what that future needs to look like, and then once you've properly quantified what that future looks like, you can then start to ask more strategic questions about the likelihood of getting there. Right. Because otherwise you see a stock with a multiple of a hundred and you say, well, it's overvalued. Well, no, Amazon was actually quite cheap because if you really started to decompose what the vision was and what the process was to justify the expectations and the price, it was actually kind of reasonable after you fix the accounting data. I haven't done Tesla. So I throw that out as we could do something in real time that might be fun to do. Yeah. Because I think we'll both, we'll both learn something. And I think your listeners will learn a lot from it also. 
That would be, that would be fascinating. Do you have for people that, you know, there's a lot of really nerdy, smart people that listen to the show. Do you have papers or research, you know, that is publicly available that I could put in the show notes when this is published? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we've just submitted uh, an article to SSRN and I'll get you the the link, but the title is Valuation Beta, Addressing the Inadequacies of Price to Book. Uh, we'll, get that, we'll get that available to you. Uh, on our website, Applied Finance, we also have a very detailed uh, white paper we published, I believe in 1999, that goes into depth on the adjustments we make and how we measure corporate performance and ultimately link that back to value. On a more accessible level, we have a newsletter called The Valuation Edge, so valuationedge.com, that we send out every month that basically collects all of our writings during the course of a month and, and sends it out. And okay. those are also published at appliedfinance.com as they come out. Now, if people want to just find out more about your company or get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to either reach out to you or get more info on your company? Uh, the website, appliedfinance.com, or follow us on Twitter at Valuation Driven. That's probably the easiest way to connect with us. Oh. You definitely don't want to reach me because administratively, yeah. I'm a nightmare. So we'll probably go into email hell. Okay. All right. Great. Is there anything, I'm, I'm sure there's so much we could cover, but I mean, is there anything pressing that you're like, oh, I really wish we just have covered this in, in this particular show that you'd like to bring up? I think for today we've we've, yeah. we've covered a lot. <laughs> All right, we've covered a lot of ground in a very short amount of time. Yeah. So, well, it was a pleasure to have you on. Um, we'll certainly do this again sometime, and uh, we'll take you up on that uh, Tesla real time valuation. I think that would be fascinating. Um, I think it would also, if if, if I may, uh, I've done a few episodes on Tesla with a uh, good friend of mine, Brian Lingus, who's out in Canada. So maybe I could see if he could come on the show and come. Oh, that would be, that'd be a lot of fun. I'll do it together. Yeah, that could be great. It'd be, it'd be great to have someone that knows the company and in real time, we can kind of work through scenarios and, and generate implied valuations for different, uh, different hot takes on it, if you will. That'd be, that'd be a lot of fun. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll shoot a few emails around this. We could, we could have a good time with this. All right. Well, anyway, uh, Raphael, it was Brilliant. a pleasure, pleasure to have you on um, and uh, check out his website and I uh, look forward to talking to you again. Brilliant, Eric. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast with Eric Schlein. If you'd like to connect with Eric for questions, comments, feedback, ideas, or to inquire about being on the show, please contact Eric at intelligentinvesting at gmail.com. So, in the words of Charlie Munger, I have nothing to add.